You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm Tim and I'm one of the elders here. It's an honor to be sharing uh, this time with you this morning. Before we begin, I want to re-extend the invitation that Nick mentioned at the beginning of the service to join a neighborhood parish. Parishes are how we do life to, here at Sojourn. We say it every week, but we believe that the church is not just an event to attend, but a people to belong to. And neighborhood parishes are part of that model where we eat together, pray together, and do life together. If you're not already in a neighborhood parish, there's a map over there um, to my right, your left, and either I or one of our other leaders would love to meet you after service and get you connected. Today, we're continuing our series where we look at accounts found, found in Luke that are not found in any of the other Gospels. And many of those accounts are parables, and today's text is no exception to that. In fact, in Luke 15, which is where we, where we are today, there's actually three parables, and none of the three parables are found anywhere else. So we have an opportunity to, to study a pretty unique text this morning. If you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard the text that we're specifically studying today colloquially referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. It's, it's a story of a son who leaves his father's house to pursue his own interests, but is welcomed back into a loving embrace even after he degrades himself. It's a beautiful story, but if we stop at the normal understanding of this parable, where all we look at is the prodigal son, I think we miss a lot. Instead, in our time this morning, I want to argue that this parable actually shows that there are two identities that can often define us, a younger brother identity or an older brother identity. In times where we live as a younger brother, we're characterized by selfishness followed by self-worthlessness. If we're living as an older brother, we are characterized by doing good things followed by self-righteousness. And both are equally dangerous if you're a Christian in the room, because both are a type of identity that isn't grounded in the truth we should be following. But there is good news here. Uh, No matter which identity we find ourselves gravitating towards, There's a loving father we can go to who welcomes us with open arms and calls us into a celebratory feast with him. Before we start this morning, will you pray with me for our time together? Heavenly Father, I just ask that that your spirit would move in our hearts today, that we would feel the weight of the identity that, that you are calling us to settle upon us, that we would look at ourselves as adopted sons and daughters of you, that we would not uh, stray towards one end of the spectrum or the other, towards um, depression and anxiety about our sins and self-worthlessness or towards a sense of self-righteousness, that you would not let my words hinder anyone's acceptance of your truth this morning, that you would remind us of the great power of the resurrection and the great love that you have for us as evidence to your son. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the beginning of Luke 15, which is where this story is found, we see the audience and context for today's text. In Luke 15, 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the hymn is Jesus. And it tells us that Then in verse 2 of Luke 15, that the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And in verse 3 it says, so Jesus told them this parable. So the them, the audience for today's parable, is really the Pharisees and the scribes. And if you're not familiar, the Pharisees and the scribes were the religious leaders of the day. 
They were individuals who knew the Jewish law well. In many cases, they had it memorized. And they sought to follow it very closely and force others to do so as well. Today, people in Montrose in this neighborhood would probably call these types of people like Bible thumpers, right? Individuals who teach a certain moral code and expect the rest of their community to follow the same code. And Jesus is beginning his teaching in Luke 15 by responding to the grumblings of those people who are flabbergasted at Jesus receiving and eating with sinners. They're not even upset that he's like joining in some sort of debauchery himself, right? He's, they're not saying that he's doing anything um, bad. It's that he's even in their presence. So even association with these people was bad to them. And so Jesus wants to respond to that, and he's addressing that mindset in, in the parables in Luke 15. That doesn't mean that he doesn't also have a message for the tax collectors and sinners who are there to gather listening to him. They've been part of the great crowds that Luke says have been following Jesus for a while. But the tax collectors and sinners aren't his primary audience. His primary audience is the Pharisees and the scribes. So what does he want to tell them? Well, in his first two parables in Luke 15, he tells two stories that are really similar to one another. First, a story of a shepherd who leaves his flock of 99 to find one sheep who is lost and rejoices when it is found. Then, a story of a woman who loses a coin and searches diligently and again rejoices when it is found. And unlike some of his parables where he just tells a story and you kind of have to think about what the interpretation is, in, in those two parables, he actually gives the interpretation to the whole group that is listening and he's telling the Pharisees what, the, what these parables mean. He says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he's painting this image of a God who is diligently seeking after that one sinner. It then moves into the third parable in Luke 15. And that's the one we're studying today. And in this parable, we see the story of a man with two sons. And a younger son is asking for his inheritance early. In these times, inheritance law was such that when a when a father passed away, the older son would receive two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son would receive one-third. And asking for it early is a big deal. It wasn't something that was done, I mean, just like it wouldn't really be done today, but it wasn't done then either. Not the least of which, because nearly all the father's wealth would have been like physical goods and real estate. So asking for your cut early is actually forcing your, like, your father to go liquidate all of their assets. So the younger son is like, liquidate your assets, cash me out, I'm done with this family. And the father in this time would have been completely within his rights to drive the younger son out of the household for even asking for this. This is not something that he had to grant. But he does grant it. He liquidates what he has, he gives the younger son a chunk of cash, and he sends him on his way. Then the younger son goes to a far country, the text says, and squanders in reckless living. What we should be envisioning here is like cashing out your parents' retirement, um, living, leaving them with less to live on, and then booking a one-way ticket to Vegas to do all the things that you hope are going to stay in Vegas. The younger son was fine with that. He was fine with being selfish. He thought he deserved to have fun now. He didn't want to be under his father's rules anymore. He wanted freedom. But then he runs out of money. He squandered it all, and he realized, realizes the incredible mistakes he's made. He realizes that he needs help, and he thinks back to his father, and while he doesn't expect to be restored as a son, he does think, maybe my father would at least let me come back and give me a, like a square meal every day, and I can work as a day laborer. And day laborers aren't, in this time are like the lowest of the low in a household. They were even lower than household slaves. They didn't have a spot to like rest. They just were given their wages and given a piece of bread every day. But he's like, that would be better than what I'm doing now. So he decides in a flash of positive self-talk, 
Right? He's like, I'm going to completely repent. I'm going to go to my father, empty-handed, and beg for a modicum of mercy. He's not going to his father expecting any sort of restoration. He's feeling completely worthless. And as he's making his way home, his father sees him, and the text says he runs to him. So envision this like older Middle Eastern patriarch lifting up his robes and running to go like, embrace his son, who's literally been living in pig dung the past few weeks. This is a picture of someone throwing decorum out the window to go love their son. And it doesn't stop there. The father then orders a fattened calf prepared in a time when meat was hardly ever eaten, except for big, large celebrations. And the fattened calf was like the best. It was the Wagyu grade of the time. And this massive party is thrown. And this idea is the first takeaway for us today, which is that if you're someone who's like me and has times where all you want to do is rebel against what you're supposed to do and be that freedom chaser, there's a lesson here. The lesson is that when all we do is seek after things we love, instead of seeking after what God loves, we often find ourselves poor and empty. And in those moments, we can tilt towards a depression that says, no one should even love me, I'm worthless. But God is there for us when we realize how poor and empty we are, and he never views us as, as worthless. In fact, Romans 8.11 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then goes on to say that God adopts us as sons. So just like the father in the parable, when we turn to God, he welcomes us into his home as sons and daughters, puts new clothes on us, and throws a party on our return. So as Christians, we can take off our pig dung-covered clothes and put on new ones where we rest in the resurrection. We see similar imagery to this in Colossians 3, where Paul tells the Colossians, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So for us, if the younger brother was the only character we'd study, we'd already have a great picture of the gospel. We'd already see an image of being welcomed with open arms, even though we're coming to God covered in this pig dung evidence of our mistakes. We see God's joy and welcome us back into his family with a massive feast, clothing us with a new self. And if you were a tax collector or a sinner, like the other audience in the room listening, you would have felt that message land. And you would have already seen it demonstrated, by the way, in how Jesus had been interacting with you all throughout his life. He feasted with them, he loved them, he welcomed them. And if you're in the room today and you're in the midst of the depths of realizing just what a sinner you are, this message is for you. God wants to give that first welcoming embrace and throw you a massive party, despite the fact that just like the younger son, it's way more than you could deserve. He wants that for you so much that he sent his son to die for you and cover your sins, all those you can think to repent of and all of those you can't. And while this is all great news, Jesus doesn't stop the story there. He continues the parable with the older son's response, which can be summarized really as just angry. I mean, this guy's mad. He hears about this party and he is furious. He's so mad he won't even go inside the party. He's pacing furiously outside 
And, and remember, he's the household's sole remaining heir at this point, so like his absence would have been noticed. And he's, he's not just expressing that disapproval that he has internally. I mean, he's making a show of it. He's broadcasting it. And, but the father responds in a way that is not dissimilar to how he responds with the younger son. He leaves the party he's throwing and goes outside to talk to the elder brother where he is. He's entreating him with repeated asks, begging his son to come inside and, and join the party. That's what that word entreated means. But the eldest doesn't back down. He just gets more mad. He's, and now he's like, he's switched to this self-righteous anger. He's like, do you know what I've done for you? Do you know how good I am? I've never gotten a goat. I've never gotten a party. Right? He's even disowning his own brother. He says, this son of yours. Right? So he's, he's saying, like, he's not my brother anymore. And his father is still patient in the midst of this outburst. He says, son, or translated another way, it could be like my child, right? Like, I appreciate what you've done for me, and everything I have is yours. Please come inside and join the party. And the story ends. It's a cliffhanger there. Like, Holly didn't stop reading in a weird spot. Like, that's, that's it. That's the end of Luke 15. So we don't know what the older son's response is to that invitation. Does he relent? Does he stay outside? And as we think about what we can learn from this parable, I think it's really important to look at the older brother. Because I, I think it really applies to us as Christians in today's context, right? And I think in many ways we can be reflective of what, who the Pharisees were in this time, some, sometimes with the way that we can act, the way that I can act. And Christ is trying to tell the Pharisees in a sense that and really I think three things about the older brother character. And I think those are relevant to us too. The first thing is that he's reminding us not to fall into the trap of being a morally good person and thinking that we can justify ourselves. Tim Keller, who writes all about this parable in a, in a book called The Prodigal God, has a great few lines where he writes about this fallacy where he says, religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God, to control him, to put him in a position where they think he owes them. Therefore, despite all their ethical fastidiousness and piety, they are actually rebelling against his authority. If, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, your inspiration, but he is not your savior. You are your own savior. The reality for me is that this is a really real temptation. I think if I can just read my Bible enough, spend enough time in prayer, treat people with respect, love my wife, then God will grant me the good life in the present. I'll, I'll have earned it. And my righteousness will make me feel better about the fact that I'm actually going to be saved. What I, what, what I need to be reminded of is what Paul tells us in Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And this message of you can't do anything is the crux of the Christian faith and what makes us so different from any other religion. We're called to do good out of a sense of adoration and love for our Father, not for our own glory or salvation. And this is the exact opposite of why the Pharisees of the time acted how they did. They sought to justify themselves, just like the older brother. And for me, I, I feel this because like, even when I try to do good, it often just exposes more sin because I'm not even doing the good things for the right reasons, right? Like I'm stuck in this cycle of sin. I need to hear a father who listens to me justifying myself and says, my child, son, all I have is yours. I need to be able to take a breath 
and rests in the assuredness of my salvation that comes from Christ's death and resurrection, not from anything I have done. The second thing we should take away from the example of the older son is to not be afraid to celebrate the repentance of others. Welcome them with open arms. Go into the party. Don't pace around outside. In many ways, we do that, when we do this, we're also putting to death this idea that we can justify ourselves. We're celebrating that someone else has put on the cloak of forgiveness we can receive from Christ's death and resurrection and reminding ourselves that we don't have to do anything to obtain that gift. We're showing the world a tangible form of love, showing them the true joy we have in others joining the faith, which helps put hypocrisy to death, right? It says, yeah, we, we're going to act out what we believe. Finally, the last thing we should be called into when we look at the older brother character is to do what the older son should have done from the beginning. The older son should not have been content to remain at home and not go after his younger brother. He saw, he sees his younger brother going down this path that's going to lead to destruction, and he doesn't do anything about it. But in Christ, we have this example of the perfect older brother, someone who goes and seeks the one lost while the 99 are found. Who invite, we should do that. We should invite them to feast with us and celebrate alongside of us in our justification we have through Christ. And the way we do that at Sojourn is through our community. We invite others to experience the very real meal and celebration that takes place in a neighborhood parish. We pursue each other and ward off self-justification in the context of renewal groups. And then we feast together as a larger body of believers every Sunday as we partake in the Lord's Supper. In a way, a lot of what we say this morning as we've looked at the younger and older brother is a question of identity. And identity is important. And we, we know this from even like popular self-help books today, right? Like if you've read James Clear, Atomic Habits, he says most people don't even consider identity change when they set out to improve. They set goals and determine the actions they should take to achieve those goals without considering the beliefs that drive their actions. They never shift the way they look at themselves and they don't realize that their old identity can sabotage their new plans for change. And this is really the same concept we see in texts like Colossians that we read earlier, right? This idea of like taking off an old identity and putting on a new one. We find examples of this all throughout Scripture. Like just a reminder that a lot of modern wisdom that you read today is like a regurgitation of ancient truths very often, right? But the core idea here is that putting on a new identity, that of God's children, can transform us no matter what our starting point is. And so for us today, whether we find our starting point is that of a younger brother, an older one, or some complicated in-between, whether we're freedom-chasing, then wallowing in despair, or spending our time trying to justify ourselves, may we run into the embrace of our Father, the character who's the, really the true hero of the story, a Father who loves, teaches, and accepts us, whether we have covered ourselves in the pig dung of obvious sin or tried to mask it with a self-righteous cloak. May we put on the clothes of righteousness so freely given to us and put on our new identity of adopted sons and daughters of God. And may we feast alongside fellow believers in remembrance of what the Lord has done. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just ask that for those in the room who are just feeling the weight of their sin and are feeling this idea of worthlessness, that you would remove that lie from their hearts, that you would replace it with the Spirit and with the Father who looks upon us and says, 
you are loved because of what my son has done for you, because of the faith that you have. And for those in the room who, in the midst of this Lenten season, aren't spending a whole, whole lot of time in, covered in repentance and wallowing in their own sin, but are instead spending time doing all the right things and checking all the right boxes and fasting like they should and following the rules and thinking that that is going to save them, may you also remind those of us in the room who are like that, that that is not where we find our salvation, that we find it through the grace freely given to us from your Son. And as we go to Lord's Supper, may that just be a, a reminder of what your Son has done for us, that the that the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus is what has ultimately saved us and given us this idea to run into your arms and know that we are looked upon with great love. In Jesus' name.